turn with me to Romans 5. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Colin Vindenbosch. I have the privilege of serving here on staff at, at Christ Church and uh, to also bring you a message from God's Word this morning. And uh, again, we're going to be in, in Romans 5. We've been going through this series uh, called Take Aim. And uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at uh, Christ as our righteousness. Uh, and so we're going to be in the second part of Romans 5. We've got a pretty, uh, a pretty dense section of Scripture that we're going to work through. We're going to talk about some big uh, themes, some big ideas. But, but last week, we talked about the reality that Christ is our victor. And then or two weeks ago, we talked about Christ is our victor. And then Christ is our redeemer. And again, this week, we're looking at the fact that Christ is our righteousness. And, uh, and so as we uh, are going to step into that text and read it in a moment, I want to set the stage and, uh, and really help us go to where Paul is uh, in, this, in this text of, of Scripture. And in the first 12 verses, or really the first, the first handful of verses, the first 11 verses there, uh, Paul talks about really some of the most amazing things in all of Romans. Romans is like one of the best books of all uh, of Scripture. I had a professor in Bible college say, if I could have two books of the Bible, it would be Genesis and Romans. Uh, because they're so packed with so many great things. And I've got some good news for you this morning. Uh, we're going in both this morning. Uh, and so we're going to spend some time there. But, but Paul, uh, in, in the book of Romans, Romans here in chapter 5, uh, he begins by talking about this personalized nature of the, of the gospel, uh, and then he's going to kind of step away uh, and talk about how, it's, how, it's, uh, how Christ's work uh, has achieved really reconciliation for all mankind and, and really what happened with sin. But, um, but he talks about in the beginning of chapter 5 uh, that faith brings about justification, and our justification actually frees us from God's wrath and grants us peace with a holy God, which is a massive idea, uh, but, but one of the realities that we're going to spend a lot of time on this morning is this, is that through faith, anybody can come to know and have a personalized relationship with the God of the universe. Amen? Right? And, and God actually gifts us his righteousness, not based off our own works, not based off something we did, but based off his work. Amen? So good. So the big idea this morning is this. Christ, my righteousness, declares my right position before a holy God. And so as I read this passage and as I preach this message, I would encourage you uh, to take notes, to write things down. Um, there's going to be a lot of content here. There's going to be a lot that we're walking through. I hope to really break it down in such a way that's helpful, um, but also have a pen ready, a highlighter ready with, with your Bible and, uh, and get ready to underline some things. And we're going to start here in verse 12. There's a lot here. We're going to unpack it. Don't worry. I'm just, I'm just letting you know. It's a mouthful. Here we go. Ready? Eyes down on God's word here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as, death reign, or as, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, God, even as we've just read it, God, would you quicken our ears, quicken our hearts to hear from you, from your spirit. God, would your spirit bring the truth of this gospel message to bear on the lives of people in this room. God, because of our sin, we put you on the cross. But because of the righteous act of Christ, his perfect obedience, Lord, we can have a renewed relationship with you. And while sin reigned in death, Lord, your grace abounded. It super abounded in such a way that it overwhelmed and overcame death's defeat. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, I pray that this passage would be used powerfully in the life of our people this morning. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. And so again, our, our big idea this morning is that Christ, my righteousness, declares my right position before a holy God. But our first point this morning, as we're going to unpack it, as we're going to process through it this morning, is this, is that Adam's disobedience creates the need for justification. Adam's disobedience creates the need for justification. It's a big idea, and I'm going to try to break it down. It's kind of seen all throughout the, the verses of our passage. But in verse 12, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, that one man was Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Adam's sin became our sin. Verse 14 says that Adam was a type, in some senses, Adam was ahead of mankind because he was the man that God first created. Adam's sin was transferred to us. And if you go now, now down to verse 19, you'll even see this. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I, as a result of Adam's sin, became sinners. You know, even in the book of Psalms, David says that we are conceived into, the, into iniquity, right? We are, we're birthed into it. The sin of Adam was given to us. But then in Genesis, and you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen in the moment, it actually recounts this moment where sin entered the world. And I'll set this up for you and then we'll read this passage here. But, but, but there's, you know, God created everything and it was good and created all the, the, the animals, the land, the sea, the, the star, all the things. He created it all. He created man and woman. He said that it was very good, right? And then after that, we see, this, we see this narrative developing where they're in the garden and Adam and Eve are sitting there. And then the serpent, who's, you know, as scripture says, is more crafty than any beast, approaches Eve and starts to tempt her with sin, right? God says to Eve, 
Uh, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. This is the moment that, that Paul is talking about where Adam and Eve took, took the liberty of not following God's commands, not being reliant on God's will, but taking their desire to be their own gods into their hand, and they took the fruit, and they ate it, and they sinned. And as a result of that sin, ever since that moment, Sin has been passed on to us, to a broken creation. Even though it was created good, sin corrupted and marred creation. But the question that begged, the question that I think that even this passage is begging us to ask this morning as we kind of preach through this passage is this, is why did Adam and Eve sin? Why did Adam and Eve sin? Why did they eat from the tree and disobey God's one command? Right? It was one command. Don't eat it and, well, don't eat it and don't touch it. Okay, two. But like, don't touch the tree. Just don't touch it. Why did they sin? You know, part of the, the free will that God has given us is he's given us the choice uh, to allow God to be our God or, or, or created things at times to be our God. And, and Adam and Eve desired self-sufficiency and autonomy from God. They desired to be on the throne of their own life. They wanted complete authority and independence from God. That's what they saw. They, they, they saw that it, was desire, that it was desired to be good, that it, that it could lead them to wisdom. They wanted the wisdom of God. They wanted to be God. God has given Adam and Eve everything and tells them they can't do one thing and they do it anyway. Sounds like my sinning heart, doesn't it? Rather than a reliance and a submission to God, Adam and Eve trade communion with God for all of humanity, for all of humanity to communion with depravity. And honestly, it's a tragedy when you start to think about this sin entering the world. And, and I'll just be honest, it reminds me a lot of, of, of my kids. Um, and it's kind of a massive issue when you think about what, what implications are of this, of this one sin of Adam and Eve. But it kind of reminds me of my kids. Specifically, my kids come up to me, they ask me something. And parents, you probably, you'll probably will jive with this a little bit. Kids will come up to me, they'll ask me something. I'll be like, no, you cannot have an Oreo. It's nine o'clock at night. I already let you stay up too late. Like, what are you doing? Like, go to bed, right? And they're like, dad, can I just have an Oreo? And I'm like, no no, you can't just have an Oreo, right? And then it goes back and forth and back and forth until eventually uh, I somehow cave, right? My, my command of not having an Oreo gets, uh, gets let, let go. And then I give them the Oreo. And, and the reality is it's like, ah, I'm just like kind of, I kind of bow under their, their desire, right? Here's the reality though. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, um, it, God's, God's justice and righteousness and holiness isn't like mine. It's a massive issue to go against the law of God. It's a massive issue to go against the will of God. You see, God is holy, which means two things primarily. First, it means that God is set apart. It means he's distinct. It's, it means he's above creation. But then secondly, that God has moral perfection, that God is the standard of goodness, truth, and morality. But here's the issue. 
If we have a sinning people, they cannot go into the presence of a holy God, right? Because immorality, sinfulness, and brokenness do not mix with a holy God. It's like oil and water. Oil and water don't mix unless something cleanses and breaks down. I found out this week, actually, that oil is hydrophobic. It's, it's worried. It's scared. That's what, the, that's what the internet says. Okay, don't quote me. Uh, but, but it says that it's hydrophobic. It's scared of water. It's separate from water. They don't mix. However, even more so than oil and water, the holiness of God actually consumes and purifies the lack of purity in things that are unrighteous. And we'll see this again in a moment. But, but sinfulness and righteousness cannot coexist like oil and water. But actually what, what we'll see is righteousness often purifies sinfulness. Some would say that sinfulness cannot come into the, 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 the presence of a holy God because it will obliterate it. Ultimately, it's a, it's a purification. It gets rid of all things unholy and unrighteous because that's what righteousness is. But when it comes to the absolute perfection and holiness of our God, we tend to do something really unhelpful. For good reason, though, we see God as our heavenly Father. Does anybody see God as their heavenly Father? Yeah, it's a great thing. We, but when we do that, when we, when we only conceive of God as like a God of love, we, we do this really unhelpful thing where we forget about his justice, we forget about his power, we forget about his holiness, we forget about his righteousness, and, and we kind of neuter God in his bigness and make him down to be like this kind of like pocket God or this smaller version of God that ultimately gets us to, to look at God in such a way that we just think, ah, oh, he's just going to bless me, and even though, I'm, even though I'm a broken person and wandering away from him, he's just going to love me. Isn't that what our culture says? Yeah. When we think about God as Heavenly Father, we primarily think about his love, care, compassion on us, which is, again, good, but we cannot forget that God is a holy God, that he's just, that he's righteous. God will bring all things to reconcile. He will vindicate all things. A holy God cannot come in contact with anything sinful or impure. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, we've talked about this passage a couple times recently, but we, it showed how, how we're transformed, or in some senses, we're purified from one degree of glory to another as we are in the presence of God. Because when something's in the presence of a holy God, it can't help but be made like God. You ever see this in your own personal walk with the Lord? The more time you spend with the Lord, the more, time, the more often you become like the Lord. In Isaiah 6, the prophet comes in contact with the holy God. It says this. It says, uh, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. And if you go read uh, the beginning of chapter 6 of Isaiah, you see this man who, who's just brought to his knees in repentance because he realized how unrighteous he is. When we come in contact with the holy God, confession of our unrighteousness begins to storm out of the caverns of our souls. But again, here's the tragedy in our culture is that people will try to get you to believe that God's love overpowers his justice and his holiness. They'll try to get you to minimize your sin. God's justice was only satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross, right? Amen. We are in danger if we think and we have a conception of God that his holiness is subservient to his love. If you believe that, you will start to confuse what God calls sin and what the world calls self-expression. You will become your own moral standard, which is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve, isn't it? They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to set their own moral standard. They want to be in charge of their own life. Consequently, though, 
if the lines of sin begin to get blurred in your mind and your life because you're not taking God at his word and seeing what's true and what's holy and what's right, then you don't really have to deal with your sin and unrighteousness. What a great perk, right? If you don't spend time with the Lord reading the word, that over time you're just going to numb your mind in such a way that you're not actually going to see things the way God sees them. And you're going to be able to have a pocket-sized God of love who just tells you, you know what, your self-expression, however you want to live, that's fine. Is that the God of the Bible? No, it's not. This just isn't an issue in the world. It's actually an issue in the church. We do this all the time. Don't we minimize sin? When we make God to be only love, we can rationalize our sin away. When we, minimize, when we minimize God's holiness, we tend to minimize our sin. I'll say that again. When we minimize God's holiness, we tend to minimize our sin. Let's not be confused by the world we live in. Our sin is what put Christ on the cross. When we minimize God's holiness, sin actually will then tend to rule our lives because we become slaves to it, because we're not a slave to, the, to God, a slave to righteousness, which actually Romans in a short little bit talks about, but we become a slave to sin. Our culture perpetuates the idea that sin isn't that big of a deal. And as a, as a people in the world, those sentiments can actually make their way into the way that we think, right? Even as Christians, we can, we can try to justify or minimize or, or rationalize our sin. You know, the spirit of our age, the spirit of our day, people in our culture, they say this, they say, do what you want, they say, do what makes you feel happy and listen to your heart and follow your feelings, don't they? Isn't that the world is telling you to do? Isn't that sometimes what the temptation of your heart is telling you to do? Isn't that what the temptation of, of the serpent to Adam and Eve was trying to get them to fall into? And they fell into it. Because that's kind of an, that's an alluring reality, isn't it? Check out this quote by Eugene Peterson. He says this, but the three person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is replaced by a very individualized, personal trinity of my holy wants, my holy needs, and my holy feelings. Does anyone in this room want to be honest for a moment and just say that they're a broken person in need of a Savior? Anybody want to raise their hands? Yeah. We aren't much different than Adam and Eve. Does anyone want to confess that oftentimes their holy wants, holy needs, and holy feelings rule and are on the throne of their hearts? Yeah. You know, Psalm 34 says this. It says, the Lord is near to those who heart, whose hearts are humble. Even in this moment, if, if you raise your hand and you said, you know what, I do need a Savior. You're in a good place. And I would encourage you as this message goes on, continue to think about that. I'm going to ask again in a little bit. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize the extent of my sinfulness and my depravity. Here's the thing that, that I'm realizing, though, and, and I know we're in a season of Advent, but I'm just going really hard at sin this morning. Because the more we look at sin, the more we realize the pervasiveness of it. And if we look directly into the corruption, brokenness, and deceit of sin that, that, that fills oftentimes our souls, we will make much of the mercies of God and he will set us free from the bondage of sin, won't he? God wants to do a work, I think, even on your soul this morning. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what your week was like whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're hiding from God, whether you're hiding unrepentant sin from God. There's something, though, that we must also know about our depravity and rebellion against God. We are so consumed with our self-justification, our, our self-righteousness, um, that oftentimes we will try to make ourselves look good uh, for God. We will try to make ourselves look holier than we are. I don't know if you've ever done this, 
We tend to think actually the primary issue as a result of our sin is actually the, the horizontal devastation that it causes in our families, in our, in our personal lives, and in our workplaces, and in our schools, and in our country, right? We, we tend to think that the, the majority of our issue with sin is, is what it causes to the people around us. Again, Psalm 51, uh, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In other words, what David is even saying here is that the primary issue with your sin is that it puts you at odds with a holy God. And actually that, that he's just in his verdict, that you are deserving of wrath and separation. You know, God's gavel of judgment should fall on each and every one of us and it should say guilty, shouldn't it? We are a broken, sinful people. The primary issue with your sin is not that it hurts people around you, though it does. Let's just acknowledge that it does. If you're hiding sin, it's going to come out, whether in your behavior or, or whatever it is, and it's going to hurt other people. But it's ultimately that you've sinned against your creator. You've taken your life into your own hands and you said, I am the God of my life. Here's a question for you, a hard question. When's the last time you acknowledged your sin before God? Not when you got caught. Not when you realized that, you know, I, it was only just a matter of time until you got caught. But when is the last time you just went to God and acknowledged, you know, God, I am a sinful person. I'm a broken, lost heart needing to be transformed. Has your sinfulness... Here's another question. Has your sinfulness actually always been about people-pleasing and the fear of man? Has your sinfulness been simply, oh, I'm just going to live this way and I'm just going to gird up my loins and do what's right because I don't want to displease other people? Or has your sin actually been primarily before a holy God? There are many people, I think, even in this room who who are shackled by the bondage of sin because they're fearful of what people will do to them. And this is, I just want to kind of care in the, in the midst of this. Um, a lot of people are scared of the relationships they'll lose, the resources they'll lose, the worldly advantages they'll lose. Um, and ultimately, they, they hide their sin in such a way uh, and they keep it under this, this canopy of, of, of darkness and hidden so that they can preserve kind of the status quo and they can put a mask on and they can look great on the outside. But did you know that's killing your soul? It's absolutely assaulting your relationship with God. If that's you this morning, you need to know that you're in a trap of the enemy right now. You you fell for the trap. The only solution for you this morning is to transfer your fear from the fear of man to the fear of God. Step out of the darkness and step into the light. But even further than that, do you know that God actually like deeply cares for you if that's you this morning? That he genuinely loves you and cares for you and sees you and recognizes that, that he, he wants to bring you out of that. And like the call to step into the light is actually a grace to you, even though in the moment it's going to hurt. It's amazing how much God's love and care for us. You know, we functionally, though, live as if shame and guilt and regret are the, are the worst effects of sin, don't we? Don't we just a lot of time allow shame, guilt, and, and regret to just rule our minds? You know, the immediate fruit of your sin is shame, regret, uh, and, and guilt. But don't lose sight of the fact that those are actually just indicators of a future wage of sin, which Romans says that the wage of sin, the payment of sin, is actually death. So I, I put it in this way. I think this is helpful. Shame, guilt, and regret are the appetizer. You're just eating the appetizer of your hidden sin right now. The entree is a life apart from the goodness of God, and the dessert is death, which is eternal separation from God. 
if you're playing with sin, if you're playing with, with unrighteousness, if you're playing with, with you on the throne of your life, you're playing with God. The hopelessness of our human condition is actually really heavy, isn't it? You know, Psalm 51.3 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And maybe even right now, the Lord is convicting your heart over some secret sin that you've been holding back from the Lord, that you've been not wanting other people to find out about, but you're so hidden and afraid from God that you're not even willing to tell him, even though he knows. Because you're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to justify yourself. You're trying to have your own sense of righteousness. Can I just give you some good news and some bad news? The good news is uh, that there's freedom, but the bad news is, is, is the Bible actually keeps going when he's talking about our sin. Check this out. Not only does scripture teach us that we've inherited the sin of Adam, not only do we try to hide from God, not only do we try to minimize and rationalize our sin, not only do we live with shame and guilt in our lives, but it also teaches us that we don't even seek after God. Did you know that? In Romans 3, check this out, it'll be on the screen. It says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All, all means all, that's you and me. All have turned away, aside, together. They've become worthless. No one does good. No one, not one. Their throat is an empty grave or an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That's us. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In their way of peace they have not known. The fear of God is, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And then it ends in that section. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Apart from all, or apart from God, we are hopelessly lost in our sin. Do I have any sinners this morning who are in need of a Savior? Raise your hand. Do you need a Savior this morning? You know, Ephesians 2.12 says this. He says, Paul in Ephesians 2, he says, remember that, when, or remember that you were at that time separated from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. We were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We had no hope. We were lost. When was the last time you acknowledged that you were completely lost without God? When we rightly understand our hopelessness, it actually draws us outside of ourselves. The problem of our sin is that we often so fixate adamantly on ourselves, on our self-justification, that we can never see our need. Don't we do this? Don't we forget our need before a holy God? If we have a low view of God, we have a low view of sin, and then we have a low view of our need. And that causes us never to look up in faith to the justifying graces and mercies of God. C.S. Lewis so helpfully says this. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that which is above you. Arrogance and pride is the trap that caught Adam and Eve. Do you have an arrogance, a self-righteousness, and a pride before a holy God? You are deserving of separation. You are deserving of death. Even in this moment, I wonder if someone, some people in this room right now are feeling the weight of the Spirit convicting them over their sin. What is the Spirit placing on your heart right now? Write it down. Don't let it be lost from your mind. God wants to do a work of redemption in the midst of your hidden sin. When we come to the end of ourselves, we see that the hopelessness in ourselves will actually open the doorway to hope. Because a hopeless person is not prideful. A hopeless person is asking for mercy. 
Are you asking in your walk with the Lord mercy from him amidst your sin, amidst your brokenness, to rightly appreciate the work of Christ? We must appreciate God as holy and separate from all of our rebellion and all of our unrighteousness. But check this out as we finish up this point. Our depravity, our sinfulness, drives the need for our justification. In hopelessness, we have no other place to go. We need to be restored to a holy God. This whole message we've been talking about our depravity so far. How do we get in a restored relationship with a holy God? We need, as scripture says, to be justified. We need justification. What is justification? You know, like, I don't know. Um, Here's the definition on the screen right now. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous only through faith in Jesus. God declares sinners righteous only through faith in Jesus. Justification is a legal declaration that someone is not guilty. If you are declared righteous by God on account of all your sins, you are not guilty for all the sins you've committed. Isn't that an amazing truth? Our sin creates the need for justification, but we in ourselves have, do not have the means for justification, which leads us to our second point is this. As we'll see in our passage, Christ's obedience creates the means for justification. Christ's obedience creates the means for justification. You know, in the Old Testament, if the people of Israel wanted to come into the presence of a holy God, they needed to make animal sacrifices for temporary atonement. Uh, The book of Hebrews actually says where there is no shedding of blood, uh, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without sacrifice, without blood, there is no reconciled and restored relationship with God. The Old Testament uh, has this whole system and unfortunately, well in some senses, it's insufficient. It it only works temporarily. And so every day, priests are gathering at at the temple and they're slaughtering animals and sacrificing blood for the atonement of the people every single day. Very clearly, there's a need for a final sacrifice, one that's complete, one that, that, that works in the midst of all of our depravity and sin. God, check this out, God active, God in his perfect timing sent Christ to be our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In order for Christ to meet the criteria of a perfect sacrifice, he must be sinless, he must be pure, he must be unblemished, and have perfect obedience to the will of the Father. You know, if Jesus even sins once, his ability to justify us and to give us his righteousness would be lost, and broken creation would be lost forever. Check this out. Here's a quote by Paul Tripp on the screen. It's important to note that the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ did not begin with his suffering and death, but with his birth. Every righteous thought and desire was for us. Every act of moral purity was for us. Every moment when Jesus resisted temptation was for us. His victory over temptation, over the temptations of Satan was for us. It was, the vital, it, it was vital that the second Adam establish a track record that was unstained by any sin of word, thought, desire, or action, or any kind at that time. You know, in our passage this morning, in verses 15, 16, 17, and even, even the next bit, just compares and contrasts 
Adam with Christ. It compares the work of Adam with the work of Christ. Adam's sin brings about disaster on all through all of humanity through one thoughtless and foolish trespass. Christ's perfect obedience reverses the effects of sin and redeems countless sins through one act, one free gift of grace. And in short, and obviously if you want to take a picture of this, it's so helpful. It's breaking down the, the, the passage that we, that we have today. is that Adam secured our defeat. Christ secured our victory. Adam foolishly committed a trespass. Christ sacrificially gave a free gift. Adam's sin brought our condemnation. Christ's free gift of grace brought justification. Adam's thoughtless trespass separated us. Christ's obedience achieved for us righteousness and Adam's sin evoked God's wrath towards us. But Christ's sacrifice earned us peace with God. Amen? Amen. In the face of Adam's shortcoming, believers can rest under the finished work of Christ that it was sufficient. Christ's perfect obedience to the point of death on a cross created the bridge of redemption between an unholy people and a holy God. All you must do is turn humbly in faith to God and say, God, I need your righteousness. God, I need to trust in you with my life. The gift of righteousness that is a gift of freedom from God's wrath, it's a gift of salvation, it's a gift of peace with God, it's a gift of a redeemed relationship with your creator in heaven. Christ's obedience creates the means for our justification, which leads us to our last point is this, is that God reconciles the unrighteous by making them righteous. God reconciles the unrighteous by making them righteous. When we come to God in faith, the righteousness of Christ actually clothes us. The righteousness of Christ clothes our unrighteousness. You know, again, Adam's disobedience brought sin, condemnation, and death. But on the other side of that, Christ's obedience brings grace, righteousness, and eternal life. God, through the justifying work of Christ, declares a guilty sinner righteous. Even though we're still sinners and even though we're still a broken people, when we put our faith in Christ on judgment day, God will not look at us or God will look at us and say, righteous. God will look at us and say, not guilty. God will look at us and say, not condemned. God will look at us and, they, and he will say, righteous. Because the righteousness of the perfect life lived by Jesus is placed on us through faith in Jesus. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are loved. And in Christ, you are righteous. We are brought near to God by the work of Christ. We are recipients of the Father's love, forgiveness. We're given a new identity. We're the children of God. We're heirs and we're united with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 helps us see this. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For, this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, because he was perfect, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ's righteous life and substitutionary death, Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven, for us to be accepted, and for us to be declared righteous before a holy God. You can't be good enough 
to receive God's favor in such a way that gives you his righteousness. No amount of good works you contribute will get you that. It's a free gift through faith. And so as we land this message, I want to ask us a question and I want to lead us back to the garden. Do you remember the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve after they sinned? Do you remember the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve after they sinned? It'll be on the screen. Let's read this together. Then the eyes, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. We're naked because of our unrighteousness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a loincloth. We sew fig leaves together as a sense of righteousness. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And when the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? God knew where he was. And Adam responded, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. If you try to clothe yourself with your own righteousness, you are naked before God. Adam and Eve ran to hide. They ran to cover themselves with fig leaves and clothe themselves with something that they made by themselves. God called all to Adam and Eve and he said, where are you? Now, of course, again, God knew where they were. He wasn't like, are you under that tree over there? Are you, are you, are you behind that rock over there? God was looking at them and, and asking their hearts, where are you? Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God because they knew that God was a holy God. They hid themselves because they were naked and they were afraid. And they even tried to attempt to, to cover themselves with their own righteousness. And, and, and it was insufficient. When we try to cover ourselves with fig leaves, it's, it's insufficient. The devil wants us to believe the lie that we can cover our own sin. You can't. We try to cover our own righteousness by... Uh, many things, and we try to numb ourselves by many things. I'm going to read six of them. Listen here a moment. We try to cover our own righteousness, or we try to numb our own sinfulness by excusing our sin. We compare our sin to others. We minimize our sin. We hide from others and from God. We hide in the canopy of darkness. Again, God says to you this morning, step out into the light. We self-medicate and take away the pain of guilt and shame. And even worse, we try to do good works to try to somehow balance the scales of judgment that God's going to have against us. There's no righteousness that you can bring forth that's going to satisfy the demands of God's justice. Your attempts at trying are hopeless. The beauty of the gospel is not that you try, but that God did. The beauty of the gospel is not that I'm doing, but that it is finished. Even in Genesis, after Adam and Eve tried to cover and clothe themselves with fig leaves, God saw that it was insufficient. And you know what God did? Genesis 3.21 says this. Check this out. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You know, yeah, the, the, the account goes forward and, and it's not perfect like it was. But in that moment, in that need for, for their nakedness, their unrighteousness, 
God slaughters an animal and kills him and, and covers them because of the blood sacrifice. You were made to know God and to be known by God. Are you hiding from him? You were, be, you were made to be known by God and to know God. Are you hiding from him? Are you hiding in the darkness? Is God asking you to step into the light? The Spirit of God might be at your heart right now, convicting you and leading you to respond. God is asking you in your heart right now, where are you? Have you been wandering the garden trying to cover yourself with fig leaves? Have you been wandering the streets of rebellion, the streets of arrogance, the streets of pride, covering the stench of your sin with your own filthy attempts at righteousness? The sin-cursed world caused a rift between us and God. Adam's sin spread to you, which led you into depravity. God made a way for you to be washed clean, to be purified, to be made whole, and declared righteous in his presence. If you want to be justified and declared righteous, all you have to do is humbly bring your faith and, uh, to God and you say, God, I believe in you. You know, our culture is filled with clickbait, right? What's the next big thing? This message isn't clickbait. This isn't a joke. This is the gospel. This is the work that Jesus did on our behalf so that we could have a renewed relationship with God. You can be justified with the holy God of the universe personally by coming to faith in Christ. And to end our message, I just want to look through these points and I want you to even process through and personalize these if you would. Adam's disobedience creates the need for our justification. Christ's obedience creates the means for our justification. God reconciles the unrighteous by making us righteous. Christ, my righteousness, declares my right position before a holy God. Would you, with faith, be able to declare that that is your truth? That God is your God and you are his people. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would work in the hearts and lives and minds of people in this room. God, you care for so deeply for each soul in this room. And God, I pray for the one who is, who is fearful of bringing their sin and shame and regret to the light. God, that you would cover them with your grace in such a way that, that, that brings them, despite their fear, to faith in you to say, God, the sin is killing my soul. And Lord, I pray for the person in this room who's never given their life to the Lord that they would know that through faith they can be washed clean and purified. And the same uh, obedience and righteousness that's won through the work of Christ can be theirs. It can be given to them. Jesus was our substitute. Lord, I pray that people by faith draw near to you. And God, that you bring souls to you this morning. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.